0: This audio presentation was pre recorded and edited for brevity and clarity.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our monthly Bright Focus Chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm the Vice President for Scientific Affairs at Bright Focus. And today we're delighted to talk again with Dr. Michael Gorin, who's an ophthalmologist at UCLA. It was devoted to research and clinical care of hereditary retinal disorders, and we know that age-related macular degeneration is a condition that's certainly influenced by genetics. So Dr. Gorin is also part of the Bright Focus family as a previously funded researcher who studied the genetics of AMD and also as a volunteer reviewer for our grants. And, as I alluded to earlier, now twice a speaker on this chat program, having served as a speaker on our very first bright focus chat, so Dr. Goren, thank you so much for joining us again today
0: oh, it's my pleasure it's an It's an honor to be able to address so many people and and sort of answer their concerns and questions well so i
1: Thank you for joining us, and before we get on the call, I'd like to mention that if you have any questions today that you'd like to ask to Dr. Gorin, just press star 3 to submit your question to an operator, and if for any reason that you're disconnected from the call, there's a number to call back in. That number is 877-229-8493, and you'd be asked to punch in an ID code. That would be one one two. And again, that ID code is 112435, and the phone number is 877 229 8493. So, Dr. Gorin, as you probably recall, we host these chats on a monthly basis, and the topics vary. We'll cover clinical topics like we are today, as well as chats about research and living with low vision but no matter the topic, we always receive questions about today's topic, which is wet macular degeneration. And so we receive lots of questions about what are our current treatment options, about the progression from dry to wet macular degeneration, and about predicting the future of our own health as well as the, the predicting the future of what's coming down the pipes in the in the terms of research. So we're... Tremendously happy to see you back and we hope you'll be able to bring your understanding to the disease for everyone who's listening. So before we get into that long list of questions that people have submitted, could you provide us with a basic description of what wet macular degeneration is? And that is is even is that a good description of it, wet macular degeneration?
0: Well, it's not a, it it is a very commonly used term and there's other terms that that uh, professionals use to describe that form of age-related macular degeneration. But let's let's take a step back and I'll get us to the to understanding that distinction. So age-related macular degeneration um used to unfortunately have the the rather poor name also senile macular degeneration, but we've dropped that hopefully because people who have this have no reason to believe that they have a senile process. But age-related macular degeneration is a is Associated with getting older, but it is not necessarily present in everyone who's aging, and it represents a degenerative process in the back of the eye that affects the function of the retina, which is essential for you to detect light and send a signal to the brain so you can have formed vision. The um, we understand a great deal more of it in recent years because of the genetic studies that have been done, but we know that there's a component of inflammation that goes on in the back of the eye. Um, that triggers the, the formation of deposits and uh, damage to the cells that take care of the retina. These are a layer of cells called the pigment epithelium. And they can build up deposits of m- proteins and lipids that are your, your doctor refer to them as drusen. And this material is actually sort of a, an inflammatory focus, a little bit like uh, having an atheroscleroma athero, uh, atheroma plaque in a, in a blood vessel. So over time, what happens is there's cumulative damage that occurs. And for some people, their macular degeneration may simply be the accumulation of more of these deposits and damage, and that's all they go to. But for a group of patients, it can diverge into two different paths of progression. One is where the cells that care for the retina begin to die, and you start getting areas of atrophy that is cell loss. And on those areas of cell loss, you lose areas of vision, and that's called atrophic or advanced dry macular degeneration. That's usually slower, um, but it can be very problematic for people because it can create like little holes in their vision. And ultimately, if those holes get larger and coalesce, one can lose central vision from that. The second pathway, and by the way, they're not mutually exclusive. Some people can have both of these things going on. Um, is where because of the damage to the cells underneath the retina, it triggers the formation of a blood vessel. This is either a blood vessel underneath the retina or sometimes even in the retina that is an abnormal growth. It is not a tumor or a cancer, but it's a blood vessel that's stimulated to grow, and it unfortunately leaks and can bleed. And because of that leakage and bleeding, that is why you get the term wet, because the fluid is leaking into the retina. And over time, that accumulation of blood and fluid disrupts not only the architecture of the cells, but leads to their cell death and can lead to fairly rapid vision loss. So wet macular degeneration treatments at this stage are really focused on trying to prevent the ongoing growth and leakage of these abnormal blood vessels. And that's where the current treatments are. The, The treatments do not stop the underlying degenerative process. Of the that that causes macular degeneration in the first place. So a person who is even having successful treatment of the of the wet form of macular degeneration is really not having their macular degeneration stopped. They're just having that complication of it being blocked and limiting the amount of damage that occurs. Okay. Um, now we can we'll talk I guess in a few minutes about the treatments for wet macular degeneration. But right now, all of the treatments are really focused on stopping these abnormal blood vessels from growing. There, um, in the old days, before we had the the injections that we we talk about now and the medications, we used to try to use laser to essentially cauterize these abnormal vessels, kind of like using a flamethrower to destroy the weeds in your in your driveway. Right. But that that obviously we've come a long way there, and now we can preserve a lot more vision with the treatments that we have. I'll stop at this point.
1: Well, of course, but I think you're leading right into where we get so many questions on what are the current treatments. And so many of the people on the line uh have been receiving treatments for a while and they've been receiving what their eye care provider has prescribed. But maybe could you could you tell us what are the most common treatments for the more sure. advanced for the wet forms of macular degeneration and how they might differ from one another.
0: Okay. So first of all, the only basic treatment that we have for age-related macular degeneration itself are the ARED supplements. These are the vitamin and nutrient supplements that were tested by the age-related eye disease study that was funded by the National Eye Institute. They had two studies, an ARED study and then an AREDS 2 And those supplements are the only thing that we know of right now that can slow but not stop slow the progression of underlying age-related macular degeneration. There are companies working on therapies to try to get at the fundamental processes that go on, uh, but there's nothing really out there yet, but we're optimistic. Turning to wet macular degeneration, again, all of the treatments are designed to prevent the growth and leakage of these abnormal blood vessels in or under the retina. They involve these. All of the drugs currently in use are targeted against a specific molecule that's released by the cells as that degeneration process occurs. That. That molecule that is released is called vascular endothelial growth factor, and it is actually used by the body to stimulate the growth of blood vessels under many circumstances. So it's not just limited to the eye. It can be used in other tissues as well. Whenever you have an injury and blood vessels have to grow back into that tissue, that that's factor is released by the tissue in order to stimulate blood vessels to grow. And in fact, the discovery of drugs to block that molecule are the result of the work of a a scientist who really um, was focused on using it to stop cancer growth because cancers, as they grow, have to have a blood supply to feed the cancer tumor as it enlarges. And so he developed drugs um, to, to essentially prevent that. And that's where the drugs have come from that we're using. So there are currently three major drugs that we're using that we inject into the eye that act as an inhibitor of this vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF for short. And they are Avastin. I'm giving you the the brand names, not the uh, generics, which are I find very hard to pronounce, to be honest with you. Avastin, Lucentis, and ILEA all of these drugs work basically by very similar mechanisms of binding that particular factor. Now, anybody who knows biology will tell you that nothing happens with just a single molecule being released. Anytime tissues are stimulated or injured, multiple factors are released. And the same thing occurs as the stimulus for blood vessels to grow in wet macular degeneration. So there are other factors, but there's no question that the vascular, the VEGF is the biggest one and the most important. But there are companies that are working on drugs that attack other molecules along those pathways that stimulate vessels to grow. And so we're hoping that in the next few years, we will see additional uh, medications available for people where simply attacking one molecule is insufficient. Now, what are the differences between Avastin, Lucentis, and Ilea? Are they identical? Not exactly. Avastin was originally created specifically for the treatment of cancers, and it was given systemically, that is, given as as an intravenous infusion of drug to go throughout the whole body to inhibit the growth of vessels associated with a person's cancer, and it is used for that. When we use it in the eye, we take one of those dosages and a pharmacy divides it up into smaller dosages that we then use for individual patients. This is when you've heard about compounding pharmacies and things like this. These are places that are dividing up this large dose of Avastin into smaller doses necessary to be used in the eye. Because of the pricing by pharmaceutical companies, the actual cost of a small dose of Avastin necessary to treat the eye is very small, on the order of $20 to $40. And that's why Avastin is so much cheaper. It's not an inferior drug. It's just that it was made to be sold in an amount for a charge of several thousand dollars for a single dose for a cancer patient. Lucentis was developed by the same company, Genentech. It is slightly engineered differently. The molecule has slightly different components and binds a little bit differently. But overall, multiple studies have found no difference, really, in the effectiveness of Avastin versus Lucentis. There have been efforts to try to show that one may be safer than the other, but quite frankly, uh, I have not found that evidence terribly compelling. But there are patients who come to me sometimes who say they think that the Lucentis, which was developed specifically for the eye, they think might be safer, and so they prefer it. But in my opinion, there's really no difference. And the effectiveness of the two drugs is about the same. ILEA is called a VEGF trap, and it's a little bit different than Avastin and Lucentis because it's not an antibody that's been engineered but a molecule that's meant to mimic the receptor for vegf so it binds differently but very strongly and it binds more of the forms of vegf hence it seems to be not only a bit more potent but to last longer in the eye which is why you will see doctors who will use ilea um, in patients who fail avastin or lucentis or if they feel that um that they want to extend the time between treatments um Currently, the recommendations for ILEA are to use it monthly for several cycles, like three, and then to go to up to every two months. Uh, Personally, I don't use it that way, but uh, many doctors do. And the reason for that is the feeling that it can last a bit longer. There are companies that are working on, again, delivery forms of these drugs to allow one to not have to have an injection every month. And ideally, one would like to see it for at least a six-month period before you'd need to be retreated again. This is being achieved by a number of approaches, including there are people working on eye drops that might substitute for the injections. There are people working on implantable reservoirs that can be refilled. So you fill the little chamber up with the drug, and it sits there and releases it at a slow rate, regular rate over a number of months, and then gets refilled again. And finally, there are people who are working on a gene therapy approach, where essentially they inject into the cells of the retina a virus that contains a molecule that can make a molecule like the drug, and it then is continuously manufactured in the eye for a long period of time, thus achieving essentially long-term inhibition of VEGF. Um, So those are some of the things that are being developed to try to get longer-term action. I, I should point out well, that. A, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was go
1: going to say, I, you know, one of the uh, one of the questions that that comes in all the time, and we have it coming in from a, a couple different people right now, is about the actual injection process and the questions about the safety of that, and whether or not uh, how long the injections occur, and uh, what what is the long term safety of having a needle you know in your eye injecting these drugs and uh, you know and what's the long-term safety of the drugs themselves do you do you have any opinion or, or oh yeah no there's about that
0: yeah I it well first of all I think that those concerns are very understandable and there's something you should always discuss with your doctor you should have a good sense most of us believe that these injections are the medications are very safe um, we, You know, I have patients who I have treated with many, many injections over many months, over years, um, who where it is, they've tolerated it well. Um, there are potential risks and complications. Um, some people get elevated pressure in the eye from repeated injections, and we're not quite sure why some people do and some don't. But that then has to be treated as a new and separate problem. There are some people who can get bleeding. Bleeding on the outside of the eye is not a big deal. That often occurs with these injections. A little blood vessel on the surface of the eye can bleed, and you look terrible, but it's nothing to worry about. But some people get bleeding in the eye, and usually those are people who have very low pressure in the eye when they start. Maybe they're an advanced glaucoma patient. Um Our biggest fear is inflammation or infection in the eye after an injection, and this is why our techniques are developed to try to minimize the chance of that. There's no way of completely eliminating the possibility of that occurring in somebody, but the steps that most of us have taken uh, have reduced that to a very, very low level, and we try to make sure that all of our patients understand what are the earliest symptoms if they're getting inflammation or infection in the eye to come in so we can promptly uh, diagnose it and treat it. Um, You've asked the question of how long do people need injections and is there a limit on how many they can have? Uh, I have people who've had over 50 injections in one eye uh, and they've tolerated it well. You might think that they would get scarring at the injection sites, but we've not seen that as a serious problem. Um, We do not see them necessarily becoming resistant to the drug. Um, There have been concerns about an increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. Um, Quite frankly, we just analyzed a massive amount of of, um, health insurance data about this, and it's really not all that clear. Uh, The people who are at greatest risk for these drugs increasing their risk of heart attack and stroke are people who've already had a heart attack and a stroke or a stroke. So the drugs themselves may increase the risk slightly uh, in those people who are vulnerable, uh, but in general again, it can be done very safely. Uh, My oldest patient who's been getting injections, I injected a gentleman yesterday. He's 103. Uh, He tolerated the injection very well. He's been getting injections since he was uh, in his 90s. Uh, And we've been able to preserve sight in his one good eye uh, fairly effectively over the last eight or 10 years. Um, The original studies were showed the best benefit was for patients getting monthly injections and that was over a two-year period. Obviously, we've all reached a point where of exhaustion, both patients and doctors, and so we're all looking for ways of reducing the number of injections that we do without compromising vision. So, you will find that your doctor may use a variety of strategies in a way to try to reduce the total number of injections that you may have to have. I have a particular way that I do it, but others use what's called a treat-and-extend approach where once the person shows no activity of their new vessels, those abnormal vessels, they will do an injection and extend the period longer and longer between injections so that up to a period maybe of three months so that the person has no more than four injections in a year. My preference is to inject a person to the point where there's no activity of that vessel then to continue injections for another uh, two-month period, Um, and if I can show that after two months, again, there's still no activity, I actually stop injections for a period of time and see if the person remains stable. I've had some patients go anywhere from three to five years without requiring another injection and with no loss of vision, while other people, after only a few months, will start to have a recurrence of the, the vessel activity, and then we start injections again. Well, Dr.
1: Gorens this is this is actually quite interesting we just had a uh, a caller dial in a uh, dial in a question uh Merrill from Ohio asked the question about PRN you know and is there a difference from arids too and now it sounds like you know PRN is the medical abbreviation for essentially what you're describing so when when well, we see that when 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 we see that 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 acronym what what are we seeing on a... Okay on
0: a, so PRN stands for PRN actually stands for what as needed. And I don't actually follow that exactly because what I found is if you if you stop injecting the minute the person doesn't show any leakage, the risk of the vessel coming back is extremely high. And so what happens is you can find yourself in a position of being chased in the sense that the doctor sees you there's no leakage, he says, okay, no injection now, come back in a few weeks, person comes back in a few weeks, now there's leakage, the doctor gives an injection, says, come back in a month. The person comes back in a month. They look dry. He says, no injection. Then they come back a few weeks later and there's fluid again. And so he gives another injection. And what this means is that during that time, the person is constantly getting recumulation of fluid for periods of time in the retina. And ultimately that does cause damage and there's a risk of bleeding uh, as well. Um, And those patients, if you do it just that way, tend to get a gradual decline in their vision because you're always allowing a certain amount of damage to occur before you start treating again. Um, the other problem with that is that is that you're constantly doing having the patient coming in and doing tests to see. We use primarily now optical coherence tomography or OCT to do high-resolution imaging of the retina to see if there's fluid there. And we also use fluorescein angiography, but the OCT is really the most powerful and least invasive method. But that test has to then be done over and over and over again. If you're trying to balance things out, as I said, doctors are trying to find other ways of, of that's a little bit better than PRN, be um, just doing it as needed because you lose over time. My biggest thing that I see, and I have a hard time convincing, I'm old enough Thank God you none of your listeners know how how old i look but <laughs> i I'm old enough to remember what it was before we had these drugs, and it motivates me to be very aggressive in terms of treating patients, making sure that I do it at regular intervals of if they do need injections, not letting those injection times get drawn out too long so that they have damage that reaccumulates to try to preserve as much vision as possible. The, the ones that I see who get into trouble are people where both they and the doctor start to get tired of the whole thing. And they go, well, do you mind if I come back in six weeks instead of four weeks? Uh, I, listen, I was really busy. I missed my appointment. How do things look now? And you you start falling behind and damage occurs. So I, I would urge their, uh, the, the people listening who are getting this treatment, I know it's unpleasant. I know you dread every time you have to go in. I know that it, it messes you up for at least a day or so as you're trying to kind of cope with the effects of the injection. Not so much pain, but it, it does distort vision and things of that sort. Um, but I really urge you to try to make it on, keep on the schedule and try to get the best results you can because it's really dramatic. I've had patients who have retained 20, 25, 20, 30 vision now for years with carefully titrating when we do these injections. So PRN is, is an approach, but it, it's one that one has to be very cautious about using.
1: Well, the, thank you for clar, clarifying that. I, you know, you talk about retaining, you know, vision, but uh, th- there's always questions, and we have a question from Robert from Maryland, about how many injections does a patient typically need to, if they're going to notice an improvement? And so for the patients who are going to see improvements, well, what's the timeline? How do we manage expectations? When should they uh, start thinking, if I'm going to see improvement, you know, now's about the time.
0: Well, that's a very good question, and it's not—it's very individual. There are some patients who, literally from a single injection, will notice an improvement in their vision, uh, increased peripheral vision, or even quality of central vision. So some people respond very dramatically just to one or two injections. Other people, the process is much slower, and the expectations have to be more re- more uh, adjusted. That is, if a person's already had a long-standing. Um, evidence of wet macular degeneration in their eye and they've had damage already occur, the recovery of vision may not be great. Uh, In fact, it may be lousy. They may have lousy vision even under the best of circumstances with the treatment with these drugs, but it may, in fact, help to preserve more of the vision that they would have otherwise lost, like peripheral vision. So I've had patients who've been count fingers vision or legally blind in an eye whom we've treated who after the course of five or six injections say you know I'm starting my peripheral vision is better the the vision in this eye is not interfering with my other eye I feel I can drive more effectively because I can now use that eye the peripheral vision in that eye without it causing me uh confusion with the vision in my other in my better eye and um in some cases I've had patients who, you know, been able to stay and live independently who otherwise would not have been able to. So it's different for each person. Uh, It often depends on that general health of the person and their motivation. But if you think your doctor is giving up on you prematurely, get another doctor. And if you think your doctor is being overly aggressive, talk to the doctor and and see maybe it, it isn't worth pushing so hard if this is so disruptive to your life. But in general, you have to kind of know where you are in the disease process in terms of what you can reasonably expect.
1: I hope that that makes it clear. Absolutely. I think that segues nicely into a question from Margie from Wisconsin who was told that she no longer needed to go to a retina specialist's office. And was wondering if she might have to start going again in the future. But I think the what what dovetails with what you were just saying is if your eye care provider has given up on you. So what when when what are our clues to know whether the the decision to discontinue a treatment has been a rational one that that makes sense or might stimulate us to go find another doctor?
0: Well, is that, I a, think... is that
1: a fair question, or is that?
0: No, a that's a, that, that, I think it's a fair question. It, it's a challenging one. Um, in part, it, it, but it's it's complicated. In part, it has to do with if you have an eye, for example, if, if that is really severely damaged. The vision, is, you have a lot of scarring and damage to the retina as a result of, of the macular degeneration. The vision is extremely poor. Uh, maybe at best count fingers or hand motion, you can just see movements, but you can't make out anything. And the other eye is substantially better, um, such that it's one eye is much, much worse off. You might reach a point where you might say to the doctor or the doctor might say, it's not worth giving you more injections because we know that we can't restore enough vision to help that eye. On the other hand, that may change if you're on a blood thinner, for example, for atrial fibrillation, which many of our patients are, you may want the doctor to continue injections even in that terrible eye because bleeding in that eye in someone who is on an anticoagulant could be really a terrible complication and make their lives really miserable with a painful blind eye. So there's a situation where you might continue treatment in an eye that has no hope of good vision in order to prevent a, a possible complication because of other medical factors. Um on the other hand, it, I if you're in that situation and you decide not to treat that really poor eye, your surveillance of the good eye should be perhaps a little bit more frequent. And I wouldn't definitely I would definitely not just let that person go off into into space and be forgotten. Now, in in other case so w- there other situation is where the person says, "Look, yeah, my vision's really crappy, but this is the eye I have to live with. This is the best I've got. In those situations, again, I think the doctor is obligated to be fairly aggressive in trying to maintain the vision and stabilize it, so that you don't lose more. Um, but again, I want to remind people we don't want to do more injections than we have to, because there are concerns that you know this Vegf molecule that I've talked about is not a bad molecule. It's not something you should be you know, the fearful of, it is actually essential for the health of the eye as well. And so when we suppress it with these drugs on a long-term basis, we worry that we might be jeopardizing the health of some of the other cells in the eye. And so again, we, we use it because the benefit greatly outweighs the risk. But once you reach a point where the person is stable, it would be nice not to just keep injecting when there's no evidence that it's causing any further benefit because Sustained loss of that suppression of the VEGF may not be good as well. I hope this helps. I mean, it is confusing and it, it's, it's a tough decision, actually, for every patient what to do. Well, it
1: sounds like it's no less tough a decision for the doctor who has to care for them. But I do want to leave a reminder that you can Briefly leave the call to ask your questions. Just by pressing star three to submit your question to, doc, uh, to an operator, who will pass that along to to me and Dr. Gorin. And if for some reason you're disconnected from the call, the number to call back in is eight seven seven two two nine eight four nine three. And there's an ID code associated with that. That's one one two four three five. So, Dr. Gorin, I have a question. I, we have, uh, you know, I. I I watch probably too much TV and see a lot of drug advertisements, and there's often a comment in there that says that you shouldn't take a drug if you have a particular condition. And we're spending a lot of time talking about these wonderful anti-VEGF drugs for macular degeneration. I'm wondering if there's any drugs that AMD patients should be avoiding. And maybe that's not just drugs, but maybe that's behaviors. And uh, what do you counsel people with AMD not to do?
0: Well, we do counsel them not to smoke because smoking is the only well-established risk factor. And so if it, it may be too late for some of you who are older and Smoked in your younger days, but certainly, if you're worried for your children, um, they, you're, as you know, it is a genetic condition to a large extent, but not an absolute genetic. It's called complex because it's not just simply passed down from parent to child. So, one piece of advice is if you're if you have macular degeneration and you have concerns about the increased risk for your children, certainly encourage them to avoid smoking and to eat a healthy diet, et cetera. And, That's all pretty much out there in the literature. In terms of of drugs to avoid, certainly we prefer that patients um, who have active wet macular degeneration not be on anticoagulants, but the reality is many of our older citizens do have atrial fibrillation or have a history of blood clots and are on either Warfarin or Pradaxa or Equus, these drugs that are meant to... um, reduce the chance of of getting clots. Um, And so we we can certainly handle that. Uh, It does not affect the safety of the injections. I know you'd worry that, will that injection trigger bleeding in the eye? But that actually almost never happens, even with patients who are on these medications. And that's because when we inject the medicine into the eye, for a brief period of time, the pressure in the eye goes up quite high, and it acts like Holding your finger on a bleeding blood vessel, it prevents bleeding from occurring. And by the time that pressure comes down, very rarely do people have a bleeding problem. So, um, those drugs are not a reason not to have an injection done, but it may be a reason why you'd want to keep having injections if you still have active wet macular degeneration, because as long as those vessels are leaking and potentially bleeding, a person on an anticoagulant could have a much worse outcome. I actually don't know of any other drugs that we would tell people they can't take. Um, as I said, we, we, there are complications from for some people with these injections, like glaucoma um, can occur where the pressure stays elevated in the eye. Again, it's a matter of trade-off. Um, we can treat glaucoma if we have to. If pressure gets elevated, we can treat that by m- drops or surgery. Um, and so we'll take care of it but losing your central vision is really a very unfortunate uh, situation and one that it's worth our efforts even if there are potential problems to try to treat. Well maybe let's turn to
1: questions about the, the future for a second. Henry from Pennsylvania is asking a question about uh, new potential therapies that involve growth factors. Of course, in, in the VegF molecule we've been talking about, the GF stands for growth factors. And Henry's asking how we're coming along with sGF as a new potential treatment. So where where do we stand with the the future of of using growth factors as therapies for macular degeneration?
0: Well, I think there's real promise. Uh, the drug companies are very interested in this because it's a great Right now, that's a huge source of revenue, and it could be even more in the future. There's there are trials going on with Flovista, which is a drug that goes after another growth factor. It's um it's very promising, but you know interestingly, because of the enormous success of the anti-VEGF drugs, it's raised the bar very high. You know you can't simply prove that it works better than nothing. You have to prove that the combination or the use of this new agent is better than what we currently have. That's a good thing, uh, but it is more challenging. So uh, the companies are, there is a clinical trial going on now with a combination of FloVista and Lucentis um, to see if the combination is more effective than the what, Lucentis alone. Um, I think that that's going to be helpful for a subgroup of patients Um but it's probably unlikely that we'll need to use it for everybody. Um, the real challenge is going to be two things. One is how can we deliver the drug on a more sustained basis so you don't need so many injections because of the, the risk and the discomfort and the cost. And secondly, we need to get at medications that get to the underlying cause of the macular degeneration itself. No combination of, of, Drugs that block wet macular degeneration are going to be fully effective if we don't actually stop the underlying process that's leading to the situation in the first place. So, really, that's where I think ultimately we're going to have to be investing more in the in the research and uh, drug development. Well, thank you. I, I'd, I'd be
1: remiss as part, as a employee of the Bright Focus Foundation if I didn't mention that that that. Helping to spark the research that looks at underlying mechanisms of age related macular degeneration is uh, the bread and butter of the of the foundation and certainly um, certainly a, a parallel interest to the educational programs which this is a part of. but following up on the the future of therapies, we have the provocative question coming from William from New York. It sort of says, "Cut to the chase. If you're able to transplant hearts, why can't you transplant eyes and uh yeah, so so what uh, so I know in the news, we've seen uh ambitions towards whole eye transplants uh what What complicates that, and how far off is that into the future?
0: Well, actually, the question should be not transplanting hearts. I mean, the back of the eye, the retina, is really part of one's brain. It, it, is, it is the same tissue. It, is, it comes out as the, bra- as the brain develops. You have the development of the optic nerves and the tissue that goes out to form the retina. It's a neuroectoderm. So really, when you talk about transplanting an eye, I mean, we're, we already can transplant corneas, for example, but that's just the front of the eye. But when you talk about trying to restore the function and um, integrity of the retina, you are actually talking about essentially brain transplantation. Now, you've heard recently of somebody who's talked about transplanting a whole head of somebody onto uh, a body, and it's raised some interesting hackles. But um, the problem really comes in not so much putting the tissue into the into someone's body, but getting it to connect. Um, you have to map. Essentially, if you were to transplant the back of an eye, you would have to have all those neurons that... Um, are in the retina, not only stay connected to each other, but then form connections all the way back into the brain again through axons that are very, very long and very difficult. Now, you're right. We might eventually reach a point, just like if we have, we could treat uh, transected spinal cords, we might be able to do that. But that that's what's holding us back now. You, you can't simply, with a heart, the nerve connections for a heart are really very minimal. You can use a pacemaker, essentially, to trigger the the contractions of a heart and hooking up the plumbing is not as hard as the wiring in a sense. So I think that's what's holding us back. Um, Many people are very excited about stem cells, but you know, stem cells are a real challenge. Um, You're reading about people who are offering stem cell therapies at the moment, but what they're really proposing is to inject cells into parts of the body where those cells don't replace lost cells but simply provide a kind of biological factors that make everybody a little bit healthier to to maintain or restore function not restore but to maintain function where people really hope that stem cells will have a future is being able to replace cells that have been lost but just keep in mind that's a major challenge because when the retina gets damaged the cells that remain are not the same anymore. They rewire to stay alive. They've changed their connections with each other. There's scar tissue that forms in those areas. So you have cells that normally wouldn't be present forming tissue, bands of tissue in the retina as well. And so putting stem cells in, they have to navigate through this landscape that's been horribly damaged and sort of make repairs and make connections in order to restore function. I often use the analogy of trying to rebuild a bombed out neighborhood you You can't do it until you clear away the wreckage and you reestablish you know electrical and plumbing and sewage lines into the area before you can start building homes again. You're asking a lot of these stem cells, and people are working towards doing it um, but it's it's certainly not there yet.
1: Well, well, thank you. So we have a we have another interesting question, returning more towards the specifics of wet macular degeneration. Melanie from Colorado has heard from her clients, and so I'm not sure what occupation she has, but she's heard from her clients who have told her that their wet macular degeneration has reverted back to dry. And we've already talked that you know those terms are a little bit uh, not quite as descriptive as maybe the the terms a professional uh, a doctor might use. But in general, is that possible? Do we see dynamics like that that uh, that uh, that the wet form might subside or resolve completely, and someone might be left with the dry form?
0: Well, I I personally hate those terms because they are so confusing dry macular degeneration essentially refers to that which is not wet. Um, so when the person has, so that's how you get the situation that's kind of weird, where the person had wet macular degeneration, they're treated um, sufficiently and successfully so that the blood vessel that was there is no longer active. It's no longer leaking or bleeding, um, and it can go into a quiescent state for anywhere from A short period of time to years, as I've pointed out, you can refer to that retina as dry because they have no fluid there. But in a sense, that vessel is not completely eliminated. Even the the newest technologies show that even in those cases where it's fully controlled, with really careful imaging, we can find evidence of that original vessel still partially being there. So you can have a person who has been wet, who I refer to as goes into sort of remission, Um, and that remission can be long-lasting. I've tried all through this discussion to carefully avoid any allusion of wet macular degeneration in this abnormal blood vessel to cancer because these blood vessels are growing in response to an injury, and they are not like a tumor. But I would argue that the term wet macular degeneration is like making almost a diagnosis of somebody who had cancer who you treated and has no evidence of cancer. Are they truly now with no cancer, or do we consider them in remission? And as you know, most of us would sort of view that as a, a remission state. They they will still always have to be under surveillance, they will always have to be watched. One has a higher chance of recurrence of the disease or even new disease um, in these patients. And so, I, I think that that's a better way to think of it than just saying, well, they've gone back to some earlier stage of the disease. Well,
1: thank you for clarifying that. That certainly makes a tremendous amount of sense. I think we have time for one final question, and we'll leave the last one uh, uh, on uh, on the hopeful future of a uh, future of, of therapies side. So, Mary from Michigan has asked if Dr. Gorin could talk a little bit about physical therapies such as the implantable miniature telescope. So rather than a drug, this is, a, as the device says, an implantable miniature telescope. What do we know about that and who who's using those types of technologies?
0: Well, there are a number of centers. It is an FDA-approved device to put in a miniature telescope in an eye in order to essentially magnify an image for somebody. I am not a big... I I have to tell you, I'm not a big proponent of it, but I will tell you why. Um, When you magnify the image in one eye, that makes you reliant essentially on the other eye for a normal view of the world with normal depth perception and normal perception of objects around you. Because just imagine if you were holding up a binocular, or a, a monocular telescope to one eye, and you were trying to walk around, you would have to use the other eye to not walk into things because your your perception of depth and everything is off with the telescope. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I think that it's great to be able to use both of your eyes and your peripheral vision to help you orient you in the world. Um, also, because the disease is in both eyes in most patients, it may be worse in one eye than the other, but it may not always stay the same degree of severity in both eyes. And so you can have a situation where you chose your better eye for the telescope, and then gradually over time, that eye gets worse, and now you really need to rely on the other eye, but you can't do surgery in that eye with a telescope because you need that eye to see your peripheral vision as well. So you've limited your options. Um Uh, I I personally, I understand people's desire not to have something that's in front of their face or handheld. But you know, the point is, is that if you have something that you're holding in front of your face, you can take it away when you don't want it. And you can make it stronger when you want to. And you can use it in situations where you need it and put it aside when you don't. When you have something that's implanted in the eye, I think your options are less, to be honest with you. So I'm not, I, I apologize for those who, who, may be out there who have it and we're really happy with it. I think that's great. Um, But I have a hard time recommending that as an option for most of my patients. Um, It's just too limiting. Now, there are for people with really, really advanced macular degeneration, you know, there are technologies developed to create sort of an artificial electronic retina that's implantable. Right now, the, the acuity that's achievable with those is really very low still. And so those are not uh, yet really great options for the macular degeneration patient who still has good peripheral vision but has lost central vision. Those devices do not yet give good enough restoration of central vision to be totally worthwhile. There are some other technologies that are being developed, such as where they insert genes into the remaining cells in the retina that did not detect light and make them light detecting. That may be another way of restoring vision in those patients. So there's lots of strategies that are going on. They're not there yet. I would say to the, the to my, to those of you who have macular degeneration out there, um, I very I, you know having lived with so many patients with this over the years, I understand that this is a real hardship and a real difficult adjustment for many of you. It has robbed you of much of the joy that you expected to have in, in your older years. Um, but truly, the real thing that defines how well you'll live with this disease is is your attitude. Um, and that's not to put the burden on you. It's to say that if you become depressed uh, from this and uh, feel defeated, uh, you will be defeated. And I have seen patients with terrible vision, particularly from the early days when we didn't have these injections. um who managed to still re- remain active and engaged and found ways to enjoy their lives, uh, even with very poor vision. And of course, I take care of children and young adults who go blind as well, and I see what they're capable of doing. Um, but it, no question, it's much harder when you're older. Um, but having, I-, I would say that having a good attitude and and if you are feeling depressed or if your loved one who has this condition is showing evidence of depression, please don't ignore that. Please get them help. They, they become clinically depressed at a very high rate. Medication does help to some extent, um, but that may make the difference between them continuing to lead a full and contributing life to those around them and for themselves and becoming isolated and withdrawn. Um, And while we all hope that there'll be treatments that that offer better vision for those who already have lost vision or that will preserve the vision that you have, um, maintaining the right attitude makes is so important Uh, and getting low vision help to to let you do the things that you want to do. There's you know, it's amazing what's available now in the technologies to allow you to do things with poor vision that are in the general, you know commercial world now, you know, watches that talk to you, Siri on your iPhone, various other adaptive tools. And if you can, you know, allow yourself um, to explore new ways of doing the things that are important to you without the, you know, constantly grieving for the loss that you've experienced, uh, you'll be you'll do well. Are you still there?
1: I, absolutely, and I, I okay. just you know it, it, you're you're reminding me of all the reasons that we enjoy talking to is a tremendous technical expertise combined with just an absolutely tremendous empathy for for your patients. I, this is all the time that we've had to have to talk today. I want to thank you, Dr. Goran, for for speaking. And oh, everyone on the call, to you know, who who joined in either to listen or to ask questions, within about a week we'll be posting a recording and a transcript of the call on our website. But you can also listen and uh, download the past chats that we've had uh, through iTunes. But you can call in at 1-800-437-2423 and request a print transcript. As Dr. Gorin just uh, just mentioned, uh, our next chat will actually be what he was referring to, so tips for living with low vision, and we encourage you to register and submit questions in advance, and we'll be sending anyone who's registered for this call today, we'll, we'll be sending you a reminder email, so you can register for the July chat right now and also request uh, free informational materials from the Bright Focus Foundation such as an essential fax brochure on macular degeneration or those previous chat transcripts that I, that I mentioned. And you can do so just by staying on the line right after the call concludes and leaving a message or calling us at Bright Focus. that's 1-800-437-2423, again that's at 1-800-437-2423. And you can always... Get these resources if you or someone you love can go to brightfocus.org on the on our website. So again, Dr. Gorin, thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. You've covered a tremendous amount of material. I know there are many people out there who are listening and are walking away with answers they've been looking for. For those who are still on the line with us, we did have a poll. And so as we conclude the uh, the conversation today, well, join, join everyone in thanking Dr. Gorn. and as we as we sign off, I'd like to ask a simple question of our, of our listeners. So overall, how would you have rated this telephone chat? So if you found the chat very helpful, please press 1 on your telephone. If you only found this chat somewhat helpful, please let us know that by pressing 2, and if you didn't find it helpful at all and we have some more work to do, please press 3. So that's one, if you found it very helpful, two, somewhat, and three, if we need to go back and reconsider things. So again, thank you, Dr. Gorin, and thank you to everybody who joined us today.
0: The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice.
1: Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and
0: or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.